Ever wonder what your therapist is really thinking? Well, that's confidential. But in this podcast, a few of my therapist friends and me show you what it's really like inside of a mental health professional's brain. Hi, welcome to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified counselor. We discuss books, movies, TV shows, motherhood, current events, clinical issues, mental illness, trauma, and our own personal lives. So if you want to know what we're thinking, come on in, take a listen. Come see what the world is like through the eyes of a therapist, the podcast that destigmatizes mental illness, humanizes therapists, and demystifies therapy. All right, and here we are back on the podcast with a repeat guest whose name is Luis Cornejo. You have heard him on two previous episodes, and I'm so glad to have him back. I love talking to him on the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you back. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, thank you for having me again. I love uh, the conversations we've had, and uh, this is another exciting topic I have a lot of interest in. So thank you for having me back on the show. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about lessons that we've learned as therapists. And, you know, since the relaunch of my podcast, part of the goal is to just kind of create shows and episodes about things that pop into my brain as I'm driving, because part of the title is, well, the title of my podcast is called Through the Eyes of a Therapist. And so what I want to do with the podcast is kind of show people what it's like to be inside of my brain in particular. And so when I had this idea for the podcast, I was thinking to myself, what kinds of things have I learned as a therapist from my clients? I had just walked away from some really difficult sessions that day and thought to myself, wow, my clients really have so much knowledge and experience. And a lot of them are trauma survivors. And they just bring so much to our sessions that I can't ever repay them for the knowledge and experience and things that they've given me, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just so grateful for that one day. And I thought to myself, I really need to record an episode about this. So I went on Instagram and was like, I need people. I'm like recruiting therapist friends. And I'm like, y'all, we need to record episodes about this. And then Luis is like, ya tu sabes. And I'm like, okay, like, (laughs) let's record. So... I cannot wait to hear and pick your brain about what you have learned from your clients. And so this is just, it's so good to talk to you. First of all, I'm just like so excited all the time. (laughs) No, this is an exciting topic. You know what? I love what you were just saying because it's true. I, I, I think as therapists, we do a lot of work with different people and it's nice to reminisce, but also reflect on how that's helped us grow, not just individuals, but as clinicians. So I I love everything you just said and I'm excited too. So (laughs) you're not alone. Yeah. And I feel like it's something that I think because we're so problem focused a lot of the times, right? Like people come to us when they're at their worst, I think when they're wounded and when they're hurting and when they're depressed and anxious. And so I feel, and I think I'm guilty of this, I'm not going to incriminate you along with me or anything like that, but I feel like it's, you know, kind of hard or I hardly ever get to talk about the positive stuff that happens in therapy. And it's like, you know, 
I think we need to do it a lot more often. And, you know, bringing out strengths of clients and telling them, hey, you know what you taught me today? Or you know what you taught me that last time? Or bringing out their resilience a little bit more often, I think is something, you know, that strengths-based practitioners should be doing a lot more often. And I know that it's really hard, but anyway, I don't know what you think of that, but that's just something. No, I I agree. I agree. I think that, you know, for a lot of us coming out of grad school and into the field, there is this big, big push on focusing on problems, right? And laws and ethics and the technical stuff and the clinical stuff. Um, And that's part of the reason why in my work, and at least now that I'm in my private practice going on seven months now, which I'm really, really excited about. uh, Yeah, I definitely have been able to do more of the work that I set out to do initially when I started going into the field. And that has been to really decolonize, dismantle and move away from the very Western perspective of therapy, right? Because a lot of it does focus on the clinical aspects. And for me, that's not what therapy should be. That's not what this field should be. It's about community. It's about building with other folks. It's about being able to create a space right, with other people to not just come in as an expert, but to be human. And so I think for me, my brain has really moved away from the idea of problem solving and really centered around experiences, right? What is coming up in the session while this person sits there being vulnerable with another human being? And how can that be helpful on their journey Uh, And so I think that you're absolutely right. We can get very, very much uh, stuck in those kinds of cycles right around the way that we see our clients. And so I appreciate you bringing up the fact that we can also appreciate, we can also learn from our clients. We can also grow from the interactions and the experiences that we have with them. So it's not just a one-way thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you bring up such a good point about being trained in the medical model, right? Everything Mm -hmm. is so problem-focused and deficit-based. And Mm -hmm. when you get out of grad school, you know, right now I'm teaching at UTEP and I'm teaching the master's level theories course for future counselors. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I'm like, what do you notice about all these people in these PowerPoint presentations? You look at their pictures and everybody's like, old white men. And I'm like, there you have it, folks. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, counseling had to have existed for millennia before them, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, And I believe that counseling, and this is just my opinion, I feel like counseling had to have existed because think about all of the trauma that everybody had to go through to survive up until this point. There were freaking saber-toothed tigers and shit running around, like Mm -hmm. people being killed and all kinds of natural disasters and all kinds of other things in communities And how did people get through it? We all talked to each Mm -hmm. other, right? And there were other ways to talk about this, but here come along old white men to to package that and sell it and colonize it, right? Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. I think that it's very important to acknowledge that these kinds of practices, not just what we call therapy, but other practices and healing have been around for a really, really long time part of our evolution. It's part of our socialization. You know, we moved away from not needing to communicate to actually speaking to each other and communicating. And it hasn't just been for sense of safety or to get things done. It's also been for connection. It's also been for community building. It's the way that we survive, right? As groups of people 
moving through the world and developing an understanding and culture, right, that kept us safe. Uh, obviously, now we're more globalized, so it's it's changing again, uh, but it's still very much centered on communication on all of these things. And these are not new concepts, right? These are men who took these ideas and you're absolutely right, packaged them and called it something, you know, and I think that's why it's so important to have these conversations with students, especially BIPOC students, around how therapy, modern day therapy has been influenced primarily by old white men. And the reality is that it does not work for all of us. It does not fit all of our needs. And that's why it's changing now, because we're having more people of color come into a field that was never designed or created or established for us. And they're bringing in new ideas. They're bringing in the stuff that culture taught us. They're bringing in the concepts that, you know, were not seen as strengths in therapy before, and they're using them. And we're finding that it works, you know, that it's working, it's providing an alternate space for folks of color. And so I think that's why it's so important to have these conversations, because we get to really talk around the differences, right? Because as folks of color, we do come out learning a whole different set of things about healing, about growth. Um, and yet we're also trained in the Western perspective. And so it's a lot of transition. It's a lot of unlearning. It's also taking that knowledge and using it for the value, but acknowledging that it's not, you know, it's not a one size fits all. And that these theories are things that have already been done before. And they've just been credited to, you know, certain people because they listed them out, they did the studies, they did research and all of that. But it has been around, right? Talking has been something we all do. Ceremony, uh, rituals, meditation, mindfulness. These are things that a lot of different cultures use. And so they're not new. You know, they've just been packaged into a simple way of providing them for a mass amount of people to use them, right? And to use them in therapy. So. Yeah, absolutely. All of that is so well said. And this is why I love talking to you because you're so articulate. And I feel like <laughs> sometimes I get like so passionate about something. I think my my bottom brain, like the reptilian brain and my amygdala, they get like all like because I get like all like wrapped up about it. And I can't even, you know, because I get so upset. But like I, I'm learning through my own therapy and my own, you know, EMDR. <laughs> I'm trying to hone that in. But I appreciate mm -hmm. what you just said. And I think that is one of the lessons that we're learning and that I'm continuing to learn. And I think it sounds like you, through your private practice, you're getting to implement those things a lot more now versus when you're working for an agency or in a managed care setting, right? It's very different, mm -hmm. the things that you learn as a therapist. Yeah, very, very much. And, you know, the, the thing was that it wasn't so much that I wasn't doing them. It's just that they weren't being received well. There you go. I was still trying to use a lot of my personal perspective when it came to healing, when it came to therapy. Not that I'm saying that my method is better, but with my understanding, right, of the people that I'm serving and the people that I'm trying to support, uh, especially when we're talking about cultura, when we're talking about uh, all these things that I mentioned earlier around you know, non-Western approaches to talking to people and, and creating space. Uh, but the problem was that it wasn't well received. One, because it was different. Two, because people, especially in the system, focus on evidence-based practices. Uh, and a lot of them are very biased because the evidence is actually based off a lot of the people that they, you know, that they studied, which tend to be white people because most people of color, they can't afford therapy or they don't know how to access it. And most of these studies don't include them. And so, you know, I think that's why it's so important to acknowledge too that uh, there's a lot of therapists out there in agencies and 
big companies doing the works. And I, I've heard so many of them tell me, you know, how much they struggle, how hard it is to feel like an authentic therapist, right? Like they're doing the work they want because there's so many limits and so many expectations and all of this, you know, there has to be official, it has to be this, it has to be an EBP or, you know, all of these things that create barriers, right? And so there's not enough time, there's not enough resources. And so it can feel like a constant battle, right? And really trying to um, implement some of these things that, that we want to do. And so I think for me, that's what really changed when I went into the private practice. It was this opportunity to be the one that decided, you know, this is what I want to do. These are the folks that I can offer this to. This is who I am and allowing people to decide, right? Is this a good fit for me rather than me feeling like, you know what, you don't have a choice and you have to stay here with me every week. And, you know, or being told, you know, this is not what we what we do here. This is how we want you to do it. You know, this is all the paperwork that you have to focus on and just really move, pushing us and moving us away from the actual work that needs to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. The freedom and the choice that you get, I think, as a private practitioner is, I mean, it's so unfortunate, right, that you th- you'd think yeah. that agencies would adapt to be like, hey, we're losing all these great people that really know what they're doing and that can serve people in marginalized groups and the people that we really are trying to reach with these yeah. nonprofits, with these high ideals yeah. and whatever, but they're just not adapting and whatever, right? We're going to make our own way. Yeah. So bye. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a whole other episode. To talk that is about a whole other episode. And the system and the way that, you know, therapists are milled into almost like a sense of guilt of having to support the community. And, you know, it's a cycle, right? There's, there's a lot that I've learned over the years around it, especially doing the work within these types of systems, that there is this other part to it that's a lot more complex, right? It's the same reason why we're not taught how to start businesses in grad school, right? All of us are trained to literally go into, into organizations uh, and support you know, community, which is great, but the reality is that it's still a system and it's part of the system, right? And within that context, it does create a lot of disparity. It does create a lot of uh, a lot of around the idea of you need to sacrifice yourself. So I'm pretty sure we can have a whole episode on that, but that's all I wanted to say, you know, just regarding uh, th- that idea that we as therapists have to sacrifice ourselves in these ways because we want to help people. And that's, it's not true. Yeah. And I'm just sitting here with my mouth on the floor, like my jaw on the floor, because I'm (laughs) thinking, what the hell is that by design? Like I had never even thought of it that way (laughs) that like, we don't get taught this stuff in grad school because Mm -hmm. it's part of the Mm -hmm. system. (gasps) Oh my God. No. I feel yeah, totally duped. It's a hard pill to swallow because a lot of us doing the work and, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to dishonor anybody that's in community that has been there doing the work because their work is incredibly important. I'm talking about the system, not the people, you know, the people working within some of these systems, they struggle because they're underpaid. They have high expectations. They're still going through all of these different hoops, right, of trying to just maintain uh, their productivity, but also their own sanity and still not being supported. And, you know, like you just said, the, the big thing is, well, you know, we're, we lose someone. Well, that's OK, because then we have students coming in and they have to be here and they don't have a choice and we don't have to pay them that much. Right. And so it just keeps going and going and going rather than teaching us about, you know, how do we advocate for ourselves? How do we not just accept all of this crap that's being thrown at us? Because it's really moving away from the actual work of helping people and into 
all of this other excess stuff that gets in the way. And it's just not a part of what, you know, a lot of us signed up for. And unfortunately, a lot of us do get stuck there. And even with this whole like system of, you know, stay here 10 years and we'll pay off your loans. And I mean, like, yeah, of course, like, that's awesome. And a lot of people are doing it, but it's like 10 years, like they're like dealing with this so that they can help you pay off your school when they should have done that to begin with, just to help you actually be able to not need to make over, you know, a certain amount of money. But it's like, we're paying you low and we're going to make sure that you commit 10 years before we even help you. Uh, you know, with all of this stuff that you've accumulated because you decided you wanted to come into this field. And it just feels so icky to me. And I think that's another uh, part of it. And, you know, there's also some great places out there I do know that are making efforts and are trying to change that, um, that are nonprofits. But for the majority of it, a lot of them, you know, do fall into these cycles. And um, a lot of us often have no choice, right, when we're starting off and we kind of have to learn and grow in that way. And kind of these are lessons that we get, right, as clinicians coming into the field. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's part of what we're talking about today also is not just what we learn from our clients and what are we learning as we grow in the profession from people that we serve, but also what are we learning about the career? What are we learning about the industry? And what are we learning about our professional development and growth? And I definitely Mm -hmm. did have to learn that lesson working in several nonprofits before I came into private practice as well. And, you know, feeling the heartache and the feeling duped sort of situation and feeling cheated and having to be like burned the hell out a couple of times. And unfortunately, I feel like because of the way the system is set up, it's like it's almost inevitable, right? And that's really sad. And I hope that that changes for future generations of therapists. And all I can do is that when I create a group practice or I create a business or I'm in supervision and I'm in charge of people or I'm leading people and guiding people Mm -hmm. and the future generation of counselors and therapists, all I can do is help break that cycle, right? And not perpetuate oppression like it was perpetuated Mm -hmm. with me, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have to work really hard to make sure that people are aware of the stuff that's going on out there. Like with supervisees, I talk to them all the time about like, you need to know your worth. You need to negotiate Mm -hmm. your salary. You need to turn off your work phone on Saturdays and Sundays because Mm -hmm. these people don't (laughs) care. Like, yeah, yeah, you are replaceable. And that's sad. Mm -hmm. It's true. And, you know, your mental health is not worth whatever amount of money that you're making or whatever it is, you know. So Mm -hmm. I wish somebody would have been like straight up with me about some of this stuff. But then also like what I have listened, (laughs) you know, I don't know if it if that information would have been handed to me at the beginning of my career, would I have necessarily been like, oh, yeah, okay, I will do my due diligence Or was I kind of like a young, stupid, you know, silly adolescent therapist, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of us go in there without knowing this, right? Without being taught or told to look out for these things or or to ask for more, right? Than just giving our free time in exchange for collecting hours. I mean, there's so much more that's that's beyond us. So I don't think it's just about us not knowing or listening. It's really around, like I said, the way that these things are set up and the way that it's been maintained for so long. Right. One of the biggest things I hear, especially from a lot of other therapists, is I don't make enough money. I don't feel appreciated. I was talked to this way. 
I've had to deal with this, this and this. I've had to purchase my own stuff for my own clients. You know, I've had to do this. And it's constantly around the fact that it feels like we're not being valued, right? Like we're not being appreciated. And so I think that's where a lot of these things I'm talking about and these feelings come up from is really the idea that we're also putting in work, right? It's like we can be expected to be working as trainees for years and getting all these hours and yet we have to pass a clinical test even though we were treat we were like trusted with being in sessions with clients after like two years of doing like so many hours and a clinical test is supposed to decide that we are ready like it doesn't make sense to me because then it's like all this money that goes into these systems and gatekeeping you know because let's say you're done with that clinical exam and then it's like what like you're not actually going into your sessions and being like well this was in 19 you know whatever this was when this theory popped up or this is what it says or this is what that intervention is you know it it just feels like it's not really realistic or even updated and so even even the a lot of grad school programs right like I was mentioning where you don't get trained about running your business or even how do you deal with taxes or how do you start this or how do you do that right it's always centered around like I said that same idea that we're going to go out and sacrifice ourselves and eventually figure it out and decide (laughs) something better for ourselves or burn out and quit the field or go into something else you know I mean it's kind of like watching us go out and swim Um, but I think for me honestly just talking about important things that I've learned uh, at least from a personal perspective a big part of it and it relates to this um, it's been recognizing my own worth right coming into the field I definitely felt a lot of what you shared very confused not really knowing what direction to go in, not really knowing my worth, not really understanding the field. And so a lot of times I had to learn the hard way, right? Whether it was doing a job that I absolutely did not like or felt burnt out constantly from, whether it was not saying no and feeling like I didn't have a choice, uh, whether it was forgetting about my own mental health. And, you know, these were all lessons that I had to learn. And I, I would say the biggest one, though, is definitely the fact that I didn't do work for my on myself or, or, or for me before I went into the field. And I think that that was one of the tougher places was having to go into this field and then actually learning about, okay, I need to do work. I have a lot of stuff that I'm holding on to. I have a lot of things that have been coming up for me in these sessions and valuing it. Uh, because I also came from a home, right, where we didn't talk about mental health and it wasn't something that was prioritized. So going into the field... And not having done that, you know, it was uh, a lot. It was kind of me having to sit down and say, you know what, I need to start therapy. Uh, and beca- and it, honestly, the only reason at first was because school was requiring it. But then even after that requirement was done, I was like, no, I need to stay here <laughs> because there's way too much that I was not prepared for, that I didn't think about, that I wasn't sure about. And now I don't know how to handle some of this stuff. And it's a lot is coming up for me. So that was a big lesson for me. Um, even before I started grad school and and up until this point was work on yourself, you know, really find your worth, really just form your identity. And I'm not saying these things are absolute because they're lifelong, but really have an understanding, right, of yourself and the work you're doing. And I say this because for a long time, I I was in this field thinking, you know what, I'm going to be a couples therapist. I'm going to work with kids. I'm going to do all. And, And I kept going through these experiences and realizing, oh, my gosh, like, you know, this is not something that I really enjoyed working in. And I don't think I want to do this. Um, and I didn't realize until maybe a couple of years ago when I was sitting in, in a session with a client who was LGBTQ um, from the community. Uh, 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 and and uh, I don't want to give too much descriptors because I, I don't want to share about clients. But anyway, they were part of the LGBTQ plus community. And 
I sat there and I was like, you know what? Me doing this work as a gay man, as a queer man, um, was like, oh my gosh, like this is where I feel the safest. This is where I feel I can really offer something. And it was at that point when I started to really create this almost like a realization of like, this is the work I want to do. And the two years after that, it was a lot of trying to focus more around that, you know, asking for more BIPOC LGBTQ plus clients for with some of my employers or trying to do extra because I really love the work, learning more, meeting up with community and all that. And it wasn't until this year when I finally quit and opened my private practice that I've been doing that work. And I'm actually really, really happy to say all of my clients are BIPOC and or LGBTQ plus folks. And I love that work and it mm. feels validating and authentic. And a lot of it was because I also had to do my own work. And so really learning about myself, being secure and my identity. And I'm still doing that. I'm still going through that process. But it really helped me not feel like I was a, you know, a jack of all trades or a therapist for all, but finding a home in a space that felt very authentic to me. And so that's something that I love about having gone into my private practice, but also something that I learned, you know, that we do have things to offer. And I didn't think before that me being queer or being Indigenous was even important. And it was something I learned. And now it's something that I get to do every, you know, every week and every day I talk about it, you know, on podcasts, on other things that I'm doing. And I love it because it feels like it's coming from the heart. So I think that is definitely a big lesson for me is learning about yourself, learning about who you are, learning about the work you want to do and realizing that you have work and that you can do this work, right? I was told for a long time that how am I going to have a full practice just seeing BIPOC and LGBTQ folks? How am I going to, you know, am I really needed? Are people really going to, you know, hire me? And I have a full caseload now. I see clients, you know, on a um, on a weekly basis. And I also have a lot of flexibility with them, but I'm, I'm making it work and I love it. And I don't think I would. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, at least seven months in, I don't know, maybe you see me later on. But at this point, I would never go back to any of the work I did before. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And just to hear you say, like, before, you didn't think any of your identity mattered. Mm -hmm. But now mm -hmm. it does, right? Like, yeah. that is so profound, right? Because yeah. to feel like you have truly found your space. And something that I heard in a trauma training once is... You can't function and be creative as a therapist if you don't feel safe, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. how could you have even done your job before? Yeah. How could we have even done our jobs before this, right? Like, yeah. How yeah. did we function? We did somehow, right? Mm -hmm. We found it within mm -hmm. ourselves. And I think it speaks to our resiliency as people. But geez, man, like, can you imagine just how I don't even know how we functioned before? Yeah, honestly, it's a lot of surviving. It's what you said, right? Knowing that we're resilient, we survive. We are so good at surviving because our parents taught us, because their parents taught them, that I started to really learn about a different way of approaching this. And for me, I've, I've done so much work around moving away from surviving to thriving, which has been very uh, like a revelation for me. It's the idea of I no longer have to play it safe because this is like survival for me. I no longer have to feel like I'm forced to have to do anything I don't want to. I no longer feel like I need to be a cog in the system, but instead I've gotten an opportunity from my parents to have a career, to make decisions for myself uh, or to not have to be in the same space that they were, right? Where they were struggling and didn't, didn't know English, you know, didn't have an education. They gave me those gifts. You know, they gave me the gifts of being here 
and having these opportunities that now I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to keep surviving. And so I've questioned a lot of things in my life around, was this because I was simply surviving and accepting it? Or was this because it really makes me happy and I'm thriving through it? And so that for me has been key. And that was the main reason why I jumped ship. And I said, you know what, I'm going into my private practice because I can't be scared anymore. I can't keep thinking this, that I need to survive. And it's funny because when I told my parents, the first thing they said was, how are you going to quit your job? Where are you going to get insurance? Are you going to have enough money? Like you get paid so well in this hospital. You know, what are you going to, what are you thinking? And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is all that anxiety, all that like trauma, all this need to survive. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can't go on your own. You can't take trust yourself. You can't blah, 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 blah. And then reminding myself, you know what? No, I can't do this anymore because I don't want to live my life feeling like I'm still doing the same thing. Like it has to be survival mode for me. And so I jumped into this new concept, right? Of thriving and that has made a big difference. It's allowed me to take more risks. It's allowed me to um, take a lot more chances on myself, you know, gamble on me and not having to feel like I need to do this because I, you know, it's survival and, and who cares about happiness? Who cares about joy? Who cares about time? You know, it's more about me just making it through the week and, and being okay, you know, and, and of course that's important, but I'm saying like, we get to a point where we don't have to do that anymore. You know, we do have choices. Absolutely. You know what's so funny when you say that I totally relate to it because the other day, I don't know if you caught this on my Instagram, I never post any really like videos or like selfies or things like that because I used to be so much in survival mode that like I was afraid of getting in trouble all the time at my old workplace, mm-hmm. right? Because like I just hated the whole punitive thing. And oh yeah, I'm pretty sure they like wanted to fire me and stuff before because I was just never <laughs> going to be the yes person, right? So I was just like, they're just ready yeah. to find anything. But anyways, I was like, you know what? Screw that shit. Like I've always been like, I've always <laughs> wanted to like post a reel of me like being mm-hmm. dumb or silly or whatever because mm-hmm. that's just who I mm-hmm. am. And that's just part of... Being human. Being human. And (laughs) like, that's right. And that's the goal of the podcast, too, is to humanize therapists, right? Like, I'm a human, too. I want to look accessible because I am accessible. I'm just a human sitting with another human. And so I posted a video of myself dancing (laughs) in my office chair. And I was like, I posted it and I had no regret. Usually, I feel immediately regret like when it's something that has to do with like counseling or like second guessing or like oh my gosh Mm -hmm. but when it comes to my podcast or my creativity and with that one video I was like okay why do I feel so sure of myself suddenly (laughs) like Mm -hmm. what is Mm -hmm. going on here and I think it relates to what you're saying is that you're right like I think my ancestors have suffered enough And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, they have created the space for me to be able to, like, live unapologetically now. And I don't have to answer to anybody if I don't want to anymore. And this is the privilege Mm -hmm. that I get now, you Mm -hmm. know, versus... It's a revelation. It's a whole transformation, right? Because we're talking about being... You just said it, right? You said the key word, being afraid of repercussions of this system. We live in a system that punishes us. You know, it's almost like a parent and and it's not even like a good parent, right? It's just around like, you have to be this way, you have to act that way. And a lot of Western therapy approaches really do focus on the idea that therapists need to present themselves as professionals, that they need to be, you know, secretive or keep this kind of idea right around who they are so that their clients can't see it so that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And and I've read, you know, the reasons why and I get it. And of course, uh, you know, us having sitting there and, and telling people about our problems is not appropriate in terms of the work. 
But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we're not people. And if I'm not authentic and genuine, if I'm not myself, then how do I expect people to do that with me? And how do I expect to help people, right? People coming in, looking at me and me acting like, you know, I'm better than you and I know more than you. And so that's why, you know, you need to listen to me. No, it's like you're a human being coming in here. I'm trained. I have knowledge. Yes. But at the same time, I'm also a person that has gone through some of these experiences. And that's a part of the, you know, I, I hear it all the time. That's one of the biggest reasons why a lot of people come to this field. It's not because, I mean, unless they're narcissistic or, you know, they're coming in with this idea of like, I'm going to help all these poor people. Most of the people say, I want to help people because I know what it's like to go through these things. I've struggled. I've seen families struggled. I've had partners that struggled. My parents, you know, whatever the case is, people come into the field because they want to help others because they understand. So I think that that's one of the biggest strengths. And yet when we're talking about therapy, we're often told, don't talk about it. Keep that to yourself. Don't disclose. Don't be human. Don't blah, 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 blah. And so a lot of us get terrified of actually doing that later on. It's like this fear of like, oh, my God, if I dance and act silly, that's inappropriate because then it shows that I'm not a professional, that I'm not serious. And this is not the kind of field where you need to be a professional like that. You know, I mean, if you want to do if you want to do that, become a lawyer, you know, <laughs> be serious and yeah. not act like you can be human, you know, at least in that way. But it, it, when we're talking about like this field and the work that we're doing. This is a people business in the sense that it's vulnerability and intimacy, right? We're not building a case to defend or to condemn people. We are helping people become and create the life that they want. We're helping folks navigate mental illness. We are supporting people in being human. And if we're not human and we're acting like robots, then we are not going to do any good. And that's the same reason why in my private practice, I'm not the I take all clients kind of therapist. I let people know the kind of work that I do. I give them the time so that we can talk about it. If it's a fit and resonates, I will work with them. If it does not, then there are a million other options. 90%, 80%, I don't know, I think it's 80 or 90% of all therapists and most mental health professionals in this country are white. So if you want, you know, traditional whatever therapy, there are a lot of therapists that will give you that, you know, mm, and right. I, I'm just done with that. So I think that's where I'm going with this is that I'm not no longer focusing on survival. I need to do this kind of work. No, I'm focusing on thriving because to be honest with you, we're so scared of not surviving that we we panic. We go into this mode of having to not trust ourselves and trusting the system and hoping that it will take care of us. And a lot of times it does not that I realized, you know what, I can do the same thing thriving. I can grow and build my own with the values that I'm bringing, with the mission that I'm bringing, you know, around connecting folks, around supporting and educating and all of these other things. And I can take a gamble on myself. And like I said, we've seen plenty of people who have done this, you know, who have become very successful because they put their heart into it, because they trusted themselves. And that takes work, right? Like I said, it's taken me, I mean, I've been in the field for six going on seven years, and that didn't include grad school. So it's taken a while. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's something, I think we're touching on all of the points that I had sent you previously, and something that I feel like I want to just reiterate for people, and especially like new newer counselors that might be listening to this. It's just that we didn't arrive here overnight. (laughs) (laughs) As many of your professors have probably told you, like, this is a lifelong learning profession. But I think what is interesting about Luis's and I experience is that we are people of color and we're Latinos, right? And so something that goes along with our experience is that we've had to do a lot of deconstruction of what we've Mm -hmm. been taught. 
And so some of the lessons that we're talking about in this episode that we've learned are specific to our experience as marginalized people. And so... Mm-hmm. This would look like a very different episode and sound very different and probably be very straightforward if we were white, Mm -hmm. (laughs) white, Mm -hmm. straight, older men that were like light skinned or something. Right. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this is just not a world that has catered to us. And so Mm -hmm. it's been an uphill battle, I think, for the both of us. And I think that we're double, triple minorities in a lot of ways. And I Mm -hmm. feel like the deconstruction and having to come across these barriers has given us a lot of resiliency, but I think it's also really helped us develop our identities very, very solidly. So I think what I would add to what we're saying in addition to everything else that we've said is keep developing your identity, get good supervision, get good consultation, Mm -hmm. Be willing to be corrected and mentored. And especially if you're a BIPOC yourself, seek out somebody like us. Like be mentored by somebody who understands your experience so that we can help you develop that identity so that you can continue to help people that are going to seek you out, right? Because even in my experience, my therapist is white. It's interesting. It's a little difficult. It's an interesting dynamic. But it's like, it's slim pickings out here, man. What am I going to do in the middle Mm -hmm. of Texas? You know, and then I already know everybody else who speaks Spanish Spanglish. Like, I can't be therapized by my friends. What the hell am I going to (laughs) do? You know? Mm -hmm. You know, and I do do want to just say something really quick about that. Because I do not want anyone to think that I am downplaying white therapists or that I'm, you know, saying anything about them. There are some amazing white therapists. I've had two white therapists who I had a great connection with that really helped me. And at the same time, I realized that when I was working with folks who looked like me, who understood the nuances, who didn't need me to explain so much, it felt different. It felt like a different type of being seen. And the reason why this is important is not because I'm saying, you know, you, you, we all need to have Latino therapists if we're Latino. It's because of the fact, like I said, that Latino therapists that are coming into this field are starting to see a lot of these challenges. And so they are working on dismantling. They are working on and including, you know, cultural healing practices, other alternatives that are also part of healing that don't need to be, you know, sat there in an EVP and studied, blah, 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 because no one's going to spend the money on watching people of color go through this. You know, they just don't. We've seen this in a lot of different uh, instincts, you know, like just situations. And so I think that's why it's so important to acknowledge that, yes, that you can find an amazing, I've heard so many people tell me, you know, my therapist, right, they were great. I'm like, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. I think what we're saying is that we are so new to the field because we were never invited. We were never, you know, had an opportunity. It, this could also be cultural. This could also be historical. A lot of stuff that came in. And now we're coming in and saying, you know what? We understand how we heal, how some of us, the things that we need, right? And we, we're bringing them to the table and we're creating you know, these seats at these tables that were non-existent before. And I think that's the big difference for me is that we are doing and undoing a lot of stuff that does not apply. And and that's made a big difference when we're talking about helping our communities and we see it in, you know, people all the time, right? I get calls from people, oh my God, like I've not been able to find a therapist that's indigenous or that's Latino or that's queer or that speaks Spanish or that understands the culture or that, you know, yada, yada. And so it is a process. You know, it's an ongoing process. We've had to come to the table and create these spaces for ourselves. Yeah, you know, we've had to do the work because a lot of these things that we're, that I'm talking about, a lot of the 
spaces that we've had to take up and be in because of the needs of our communities, they were not there. We had to create them, right? We had to come to these tables and say, you know what? There's not a seat for me. Well, I'm going to build my own. And this is the platform that I'm creating. And this is the reason. And that's why we're seeing a rise, right? And so many folks of color who are in the field, who are talking about mental health, who are doing the work, and it is growing. I said before, right? There were a lot of reasons why folks of color didn't go into the mental health field or why they didn't go to therapy. And that narrative is changing, right? Because we're seeing more people that look like us. And, you know, I always work with folks who are telling me, like, I want to work with someone that looks like me. I want someone that understands these specific things about me. And it makes sense to me. You know, it makes a lot of sense that we want to feel safe, that we want to be able to trust someone um, and sit in a space and feel like we're being heard. And so I think that's why it's so important. And like I said, you know, this is not about saying that other people that do therapy are not good enough. Yes, of course, they're great. There's a lot of amazing folks. But what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, it's not the same. It's not one size fits all. And it has made a great difference having folks of color and queer folks coming into the field. Absolutely. Yeah. And going back to my white therapist, she is great at what she does. I feel like Mm -hmm. she makes an effort to understand me. She has also been explicit about her need to educate herself instead of me educating her Mm -hmm. at the same time that I'm paying her for services. So she's conscious about the fact that she doesn't want me to put in extra emotional labor on top of the fact that I'm already paying her for therapy, which is nice. And we're doing good work together. And, you know, we're working on some of the racial trauma that I had gone through at my previous place of work. So I think that Mm -hmm. there are white therapists that can be allies and that can understand. But yeah, there is that level that's kind of like missing where I just want to explain something in Mm -hmm. Spanglish or like kind of express Mm -hmm. myself in in Spanish. And it's just kind of like, oh, I can't can't do that because then I got to like go out of my way and explain what that meant or translate. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same reason why you and I are here, Crystal, talking about this, because we're creating these spaces, right? You're doing this through your podcast. You're doing this through talking to me. You know, we are talking about these things that affect our communities and the work that we're doing and who we are as therapists. So I think this is an example, right? And it does resonate that why it's so important. We're here. We're working with our clients. We're doing the work that is required for us to create these spaces for a lot of folks and to be able to use, like I said, these internal gifts that we've received of our, you know, the the things that we've gone through, our strengths in the therapeutic process and not hiding it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that we have missed any points? I feel like we've recorded a very robust, (laughs) you know, episode and we could probably go on and on about this and probably do part two, part three about, (laughs) you know, the nonprofit industrial complex and the colonization of therapy and like all kinds of stuff. But do you think that we need to talk about anything else? Have we missed the mark on anything? What do you think? No, I, you know what, I'm pretty sure we could, but I, I think this is great. I, you know, it's funny, this happens every time I think we record, we always say we're going to keep it at this and you and I go into an hour, an hour and a half. And it's just because there's always so much to talk about. And th- these are very complex and big topics, right? And, and our experiences matter. And so when we're talking about it, there's always so many different points, right? So many moments that 
we don't think about and they come up for us, right? Things that we've had to overcome. I mean, you were mentioning dealing with racial trauma, right? These kinds of things that that we do deal with. And I can look back and count on so many moments where my queerness was not valued, where my identity was not valued, where my skills were not appreciated or where they were overused, right? Like me speaking Spanish and being taken advantage of, uh, being treated like I was a translator and a therapist. And oh, like I was hell. Here, you know, I mean, these things happen. And so mm-hmm. that's why I definitely think you, if we did it, you and I would talk for hours. But I think in terms of the topic and some of those lessons learned, this is great. You know, we're talking about very personal experience for a lot of folks. And I hope that this can help people not feel so isolated, so alone, or feel like it's is just happening to me. But the reality is that this happens to a lot of us, and especially us BIPOC and queer folks coming into the field, having to navigate old systems and dismantle, you know, what you said at the beginning, all these ideas and concepts from old white men that don't apply to us, and really having yeah. to unlearn and relearn, you know, what does work for us? You know, what is it that we communities need? And listening to that and not feeling like we have to shut it down. Right, exactly. Well, I want to thank you so much. I just also want to say I'm so proud of you and all the work that you're doing. I know that Psychosocial is expanding so, so much. You have so many followers on Instagram now. And like your website is thebomb.com. Well, it's not thebomb.com. Don't go there. Um, Go to (laughs) tell us a little bit about your website so people can find you. Yeah, yeah. So the website is www.psychosocial.media. And it's an educational platform that I created a few years back as actually part of this process, because there were a lot of moments where I felt burned out. And I was like, I need to do something that actually lets me be me and creative. And that's really where Psychosocial was born. It was kind of a space where I felt like I could share my knowledge and experience, but also connect and build community. And so now it's become a really awesome platform where we have about 25 folks that submit articles to us on a monthly basis. So we put articles on everything that has to do with mental health, from entertainment to depression, to anxiety, to suicide prevention. We're starting to do a lot more content in Spanish. Uh, we also have a podcast as well, uh, the Psychosocial Podcast, where we just finished our first season and we've been working on the second season for a bit now. Um, so that's not going to come out till next year. But a lot of that stuff is on the website, resources, uh, YouTube channel that we also have. And of course, our social media, Instagram, which is our biggest outlet for providing information. And that's at psychosocial underscore media. Um, and then also my private practice, which is www.psychosocialtherapy.com. Uh, and that one for Instagram, it's at psychosocial underscore therapy. And they're both connected in that way uh, in terms of like resources. I love what psychosocial has become. It's really more centered around education and connecting people with mental health professionals who are actually writing and providing this work. We've been featured on Mental Health America on their website. We're partnering with so many great folks and still doing a lot of work. And right now, through all of that, you know, I've had some really amazing opportunities that I have so much gratitude for. I've been doing a lot more with media, which is kind of my goal, my big picture goal. Um, I've been on Telemundo, you know, talking about mental health in Spanish. I really, really want to move in that direction because I think that we're missing that a lot around, you know, speaking about mental health, but not from such a clinical context, but also from a very real place, right? And and being able to use my Spanish speaking, you know, skills to do this. And then other stuff too, entertainment. I think that mental health is in everything and we should find ways to incorporate it. And I'm a entertainer. <laughs> I like to consider myself when I like to talk and <laughs> TV, you know. So this is kind of the direction we're moving. But 
So yeah, but the website, definitely, if you want to learn more about us, uh, the awesome members of our team or the writers, or just read some of the work or share it, feel free to visit our website. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And please connect with me, Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, on Instagram at Through the Eyes of a Therapist pod. More information about booking me for therapy or training can be found there. Until next time, keep on fighting the stigma and go to therapy. I'll see you next time.